0: This is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Mura, her autobiography, written by Mura Limpany with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Chapter 8 Healing Hands I had lost a great deal of the joie de vivre, which has always been part of my nature. I had an anxiety neurosis, and I did not always play as well as I expected myself to do. My bedroom was on the top floor of 44 Bruton Place, a large room with ensuite bathroom and dressing room, lined with mirrored cupboards which held all the long gowns that are a necessary part of the equipment of a modern woman concert pianist. They were like a scintillating rainbow when the doors were opened. One night in December, while stretching like a cat in the night, I thought I felt a lump in my right breast, i put my hand on it surely i had imagined it but i had not there was definitely something there i could not believe it i who had always been so strong this could not be happening to me i passed a terrible night of waiting for the morning to come and then at the earliest possible moment i telephoned my doctor come over right away he instructed he examined it "'I'm afraid it is,' he told me tersely. "'I will send you for another examination by a surgeon.' "'A room was immediately reserved for me at the hospital. "'I went home to Bruton Place in a daze, "'and then the full horror of it all suddenly struck me. "'My mind raced about in all directions, "'searching for escape. "'Should I consult a healer? "'I believed in such people and their powers.' Or surely some new wonder-drug had been perfected? Science and medicine have achieved such marvellous cures. And I was, after all, the granddaughter and great-granddaughter of physicians and surgeons, men with healing hands. I seized the telephone and dialed a friend in New York. Marion, I asked urgently, didn't you have an operation years ago? Why are you asking me this? she demanded. I told her, and she responded with instinctive generosity. Come to New York. Now, fly over, and we will pay for everything. We will have another opinion. I cancelled the hospital bed and rang B.O.A.C. at once. There were no vacant seats, and the receptionist's cool voice reminded me that it was late December, only two days to Christmas Day. They would put my name on a waiting list in case there should be a cancellation. I stressed the urgency. Were all my papers in order? I rummaged among all my files and found my passport, but to my dismay, the vaccination certificate, without which BOAC would not allow me on the plane, had expired. Fate decreed I should have to stay in London. I tried to telephone my doctor, But it was Christmas, and he had already gone to the country for a well-earned rest with his family. None of my family was near me. I was alone with my fear and foreboding. Then I remembered a friend with whom I had always felt a sympathy, a doctor whom I had last met in New York, Brian Warren, now Sir Brian Warren. I quickly found his London number, dialed it, and, with hope and dread, heard the ringing tone. Was he there? Would he listen? Was what I was doing unethical? Whether it was or not, Brian was at home and he listened to what I told him with all the understanding I expected and longed for. He came at once to Bruton Place, bundled me into his car, and drove me to the King Edward Seventh Hospital for Officers, also known as Sister Agnes, to which he was professionally attached. Richard Handley, the surgeon, examined me and booked me in for the day after Boxing Day. My father, brothers, uncles, and my first husband had all been officers in the British Armed Forces, so I was to be welcomed as an inpatient. I was to arrive at 5 p.m. The 24th, 25th, and 26th of December had still to be got through. My mantel-shelf was heaped with invitations and i decided to go to all the parties why not what had i to lose what was the point of staying at home fretting about what was to happen to me i told just one woman friend and she had once offered to drive me to the hospital on the twenty-seventh so off i went dressed as gaily as i knew how to the christmas parties and thoroughly enjoyed them the laughter the gossip the champagne the food At night, however, on my return to Bruton Place, it was a different story. I could not sleep, or only fitfully. The second my head touched the pillow, my imagination was switched on, and I could see only too clearly in my mind's eye visions of myself on the operating table. At last the 27th arrived. It was sunless. I packed my prettiest nightgowns and negligees, I also packed my tapestry, a bag of brightly colored wools, books, radio, writing paper, and envelopes. It was dark, of course, when my faithful friend came for me shortly after four o'clock. She was smiling brightly, although the expression in her eyes radiated sympathy and concern. We drove in silence through the West End streets, brilliant with Christmas lights, the shop windows, "'crowded with tinseled toys "'and all the trifles associated with Christmas. "'At the hospital, in my comfortable warm room, "'the nurse told me to undress and get into bed. "'Supper would be brought to me. "'I could watch television. "'Nothing would happen to me until the following morning. "'I changed into a nightgown, "'got into bed, closed my eyes, and tried to relax. "'I felt tired.' I had lain there less than half an hour when I heard a quiet knock at the door. "'Come in,' I called. An elderly priest came into the room. He told me he had retired, but had been recruited as a hospital chaplain. It had been a long time since I had had any conversation with a priest, other than Father Charles Rue, at social occasions. I had not been to Mass or Confession for some years.' He stood by the side of my bed. "'Father,' I began. It was extraordinarily easy and simple and comforting to address this stranger priest thus. "'Father.' I felt at that moment like a child, trusting, putting myself and my life in the healing hands of others. I told him I had twice married, outside the church, and twice divorced, "'but that I had never lost my Catholic faith. "'When did you last go to confession?' he inquired. "'I could not remember. "'Some years ago,' I replied. "'Then I suggest you do so now,' he said, right away. "'So I did, there and then, "'confessed to him as briefly as I could. "'Father gave me absolution. "'Will you start going to Mass again?' "'Starting next Sunday?' "'Yes, I will, Father,' I said. "'Will you promise?' "'I promise.' "'And that night I slept peacefully like a baby. "'The next day was the 28th, "'but the ordeal I was to go through "'did not occur in the morning as I hoped. "'I passed the day in a miasma of apprehension, "'and it was not until five o'clock "'that I was admitted to the operating theatre. There was to be a biopsy. When I woke up, I was in bed in my room, feeling very shivery. I heard Dick Handley speaking, perhaps not realizing I was awake, but still under sedation. I understood at once what had happened to me. I took the news calmly. I'm cold, I told the night nurse. Could I have some more blankets? I drifted off to sleep, still under the anesthetic. THE NEXT DAY I WOKE UP TO A ROOM FILLED WITH FLOWERS. I SAT UP AND BREATHED IN THE LOVELY, REFRESHING FRAGRANCE. THE COLORS GLADDENED MY EYES AND REALIZED THE WHOLE WORLD MUST KNOW NOW. MY FRIEND AND AGENT FOR MANY YEARS, EMMY TILLETT, OF THE STRONG PERSONALITY, AND WITH A RARE UNDERSTANDING OF MUSICIANS, WAS THE ONE PERSON I HAD TOLD, AND SHE HAD TOLD EVERYBODY ELSE. I SAT UP AND, FEELING BETTER ALREADY, reached for my tapestry. But I could not move my left arm, or whenever I did I almost screamed with pain. I never listened to the radio at home. It seemed as if I never had the time, so I switched it on and heard some most interesting programs I had never dreamed existed, and I found I could manage to hold the canvas in my left hand and work the walls with my right. Sisters, doctors, and all the staff were kindness itself. Matron made a special point of seeing the New Year in with me, and we toasted each other in the wonderful hospital that was taking such marvellous care of me in Champagne. I did not have to have chemotherapy. I was to try and move my hand and arm a little more every day, but I did not dare do so for fear of the excruciating pain it caused. I was taught to stand up against a wall, rest my hand on it, and each day try to move my hand upwards a little, maybe only a fraction of an inch. Ten days passed serenely. At about six in the evening, friends and colleagues trooped in bearing champagne and whiskey, and we had wonderful parties round my bed. Lorraine, a sweet young woman friend, came nearly every day to do my hair and make me up and chose a pretty housecoat for me to wear for my sallies down the hospital corridor. Exercising my considerable willpower, I had managed so far to ignore completely the loss I had suffered. I would not let myself think or brood about it. One day only did I let my mind wander back to what had happened. The dreadful realization dawned on me, and I wept helplessly and bitterly. "'I called a nurse and sobbed to her that I could not stop weeping. "'Take a good slug of scotch,' she counselled cheerfully. "'And when you've drunk it, take another. "'Excellent advice. I felt better. "'Got out my tapestry charts and decided to start the most difficult of all the designs. "'That would keep my mind fully occupied,' I reasoned sternly to myself. "'Crying was useless.' Along the corridor was the nursery, a ward of five beds occupied by men, from a twenty-nine-year-old to one in his seventies. One day one of the nurses had difficulty opening a bottle of champagne for me. I'll ask one of the men in the nursery to do it, she said. Who is it for? the men asked her curiously. The lady in room twenty-three, she replied. Tell her to come and drink it with us, they quipped. "'Quickly and deftly, one of the men untwisted the wire "'and began pushing the cork out of the bottle. "'I could hear the pop in my room. "'The nurse returned and relayed the invitation. "'Let's go,' I said eagerly, "'while Lorraine, who was with me, "'found and helped me into my prettiest housecoat. "'We had a great party. "'No one asked my name, nor why I was in the hospital, "'but they invited me to come to see them again the next evening.' "'By then they knew I was a pianist "'and clamoured for me to play for them. "'But there's no piano,' I protested. "'I could not have played anyway "'at that stage of my convalescence. "'I could still hardly move my left hand from my side. "'However, I promised I would bring in my record player "'and some records and choose a short recital "'for them to listen to. "'They were delighted, and a time was fixed "'when there would be no hospital trolleys "'coming round making a clatter.' I telephoned E.M.I. and Decca the next day and asked them to send round some recordings of mine, and the following evening all was ready for our informal concert. The five men and I gathered round the record player, each with a drink in his hand or by his bed, listening to one after another recital I had recorded several years ago. From time to time a doctor or nurse would pop in to examine a patient, but sensing the complete absorption in the music would slink out again silently. An hour was spent listening intently, and then I left the men to go back to my room for my supper. "'Please come again tomorrow evening,' they called out to me. So for three nights running, I selected the records and gave a little concert. It was fun for me, too, to have their company, and it gave me a chance to learn all about them. The twenty-nine-year-old was a white hunter from Kenya, who had been out on safari with his brother, had taken aim with his rifle at a rhinoceros, and the bullet had ricocheted off the animal's horn and killed his brother. As soon as he was allowed to walk, he would come and sit with me in my room while I did my tapestry and talk to me. This was excellent therapy for me, the very best remedy God could bestow. After the most restful three weeks of my life, I returned home to Bruton Place, Got down on my knees and thanked God for letting me live. And then I thanked God for leaving me my hands. I promised Him that from that day onwards I would work harder than at any time in my life. God had given me this gift, this divine gift of music, which I felt I had not sufficiently appreciated. I had taken it for granted, and spent my life loving and fretting and pursuing the transient happiness of the love of men. "'rather than concentrating on my music. "'I practiced regularly every day, but I had no strength. "'I began to cry, to feel sorry for myself. "'I wailed to friends that I was finished as a concert pianist "'and that I would never play in public again. "'My surgeon, Dick Handley, had told me that it would be three months "'before I would be able to give my first recital.' Emmy Tillett, knowing my enthusiasm and resilience, said she was sure I could do it in two months' time. She meant to be encouraging, and I was keen and tried even harder. As with everything else in my life, I was far too vehement. Brian Warren chided me. "'You have been overdoing things,' he said. "'You will not play before three months,' adding, "'You must go away for a complete rest.' I went to the south of France for ten days, and returned a new woman. I have described the emotional effect on me of this operation, but the financial aspect was calamitous. I was a working woman who for three months had earned nothing at all. I had had to cancel all my concerts, and my overdraft was enormous, demanding drastic action. Emmy Tillett came to lunch, and we discussed the future. "'Should I go and live in a one-room studio?' I asked her. "'Give it a year, Mora,' she replied calmly, "'and then we'll decide.' "'Brian Warren, too, was against my leaving Bruton Place just then, "'pointing out that two traumatic experiences, "'one after the other, the operation and then a house move, "'would be more than I could stand. "'I should be risking a severe breakdown,' and he reminded me that I had made a wonderful recovery. Three months to the day after the operation, I played at the Royal Festival Hall, Prokofiev's Piano Concerto Number no. 4, Opus 53, for the left hand. I sent tickets to Dick Handley, who was appalled that I was playing this formidable work. It was the left side of my body on which he had operated. But I was not satisfied with my performances. I needed help. Sadly, The reviews were not as good as I should have liked them to be. I was particularly upset to read some derogatory comments about some Debussy preludes which critics of my earlier performances had described as magical. One can never afford to play at less than one's best, regardless of the occasion or the audience. Concert-goers are extremely discriminating and respond almost at once to differences in the quality of the concerts. I was in danger of losing my self-confidence entirely. One of the pieces of advice that I most treasure from Uncle Tobbs was his insistence that pianists should play works for which they are physically and temperamentally suited. And he also used to say, Mora, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. The virtuosity of works like the Rachmaninoff Concerti and Preludes felt natural and easy to me. Uncle Tobbs taught me not to resist the inclination to be a virtuoso player. The automatic typecasting which prevails in the concert world is rather like the stereotyping of actors in Hollywood. We have no Rachmaninoff for her. "'replied one concert manager to an inquiry "'as to why I was not engaged for a particular series of concerts. "'The operation had come at the right moment. "'It brought me to my senses and gave me a new sense of values, "'and it made me absolutely determined to go back "'and find out where I had gone wrong musically. "'Iona Kabosch was a Hungarian pianist "'who had been married to the pianist Louis Kentner.' She taught at the Juilliard School in New York, where she was almost worshipped by her students. She had a fantastic ear, was a very severe critic, speaking in short, curt sentences, and utterly, even brutally honest. She was now in her seventies, but she dressed in an extraordinary way, girlish, even coquettish, at odds with her austere attitude to musical performance." She had given up performing altogether, for she had discovered a truly remarkable gift for teaching. Practically everyone one knew had, at some time or another, gone to play for her and seek her sage counsel, musical or personal. Joan Moore, the Countess of Drogoda, was another who consulted her. John Ogden, before competing at Moscow, flew back to London to play to Iona before returning to Moscow for the final, and to win the competition. As I sat in the hall of Iona's house, waiting for her to be free, Gina Bachauer emerged. We talked and Gina told me that whenever she had a big engagement in London or New York, she always played for Iona first. I begged Iona to tell me everything I did wrong, and she did. "'What's this?' she asked. "'Where is the famous Limpany technique?' Iona did not destroy my confidence, as the newspaper critics had when I read their condemnations in print, which was so public. With Iona, the sessions were more like consultations with a psychiatrist. She became a trusted friend and mentor, just when I needed at this time. I found that I spent half my lessons confiding all sorts of things to her, and relying upon her opinion and judgment completely. "'You'll find you'll get that technique back again,' she said. "'And, looking critically at my hair one day, "'What do you think you have done?' she barked at me. "'A pianist wears a bun, that's all,' she added. "'I was put in my place like a schoolgirl. "'Her attitude was the traditional one that a woman musician eschews any attempt at glamour,' elegance, chic, and espouses a pure, reserved, and restrained look and lifestyle. That would not be true to myself. I have never been like that, and find it false to assume it, depressing and unnecessary. A critic has described me as enigmatic and un-English. Perhaps it is the reverse of puritanical, Catholic, and continental. "'Do you have to go to every party you are invited to?' Iona demanded on another occasion. "'I explained that I lived alone, worked all day alone at the piano, and it did me good to go out in the evenings, to meet and talk to all sorts of people. She was pitiless and disapproving, but continued to teach me where and how I was going wrong. She could tell if I was faking a passage I did not know too well technically, or any emotion I did not really feel, but she never destroyed me or my individuality. That was her great strength. Ted Heath was sceptical. "'What can you teach Mora? he asked her. Playing in a concert hall is a very different matter from playing in a drawing-room. The softest sound must be heard at the very back of the auditorium. "'I bring out what is in her,' Iona told Ted Heath. "'I teach her to project it.' "'It was true. She did that, and much more. "'Play with your wrists low, "'as if you were playing inside the keys,' she would say to me. "'That's the only way you will make your pianissimo's sound.' "'Iona also made me work longer than I had ever worked before. "'Go to the piano at ten o'clock in the morning,' "'And stay there till one o'clock, "'and then you can certainly manage another two or three hours in the afternoon,' she told me. "'I protested that that was too much. "'I had never practised more than four hours a day, and I was already overtired. "'But Iona was implacable. "'She wanted every note perfect. "'It is expected today.' "'Sit up straight,' she barked at me. "'Don't throw yourself around so much.' I felt like a willful child. You can play those works standing on your head. I worked, trying to do as she told me. Practice slowly, she ordered, as if you had all the time in the world. Never practice in a panic. We had very much the same temperament. We were both reckless spendthrifts, Her brisk manner never upset me because it cloaked the gentlest and most generous heart and spirit. Emotion comes from the bottom of one's stomach, Iona declared one day to my amusement. She was right. When one breathed deeply, a sigh, with emotion, with sadness, with passion while playing, it was there at the bottom of the stomach that one felt it. Ralph Kirkpatrick wrote that rhythm is felt in the solar plexus. All the martial arts of Japan are directed from the lower stomach. The stomach carries the body. Then I remembered what the greatest woman pianist of her day, Yura Guller, had once said to me. If you want to create atmosphere, sit absolutely still at the piano. I had been young and untried then. If you do not move the audience will not dare to either and there will be utter stillness and your mood will get through iona decided that i should give a recital at the queen elizabeth hall i have never been good at making programs i used to put into my program whatever pieces i wanted to play iona and i planned it together the haydn e minor sonata the Schumann F-sharp minor sonata, and, in the second half of the program, the 24 Preludes by Chopin. It was a really beautiful program, and luckily I was able to play it at about seven concerts before the London recital, so I was really quite confident. Since my operation, out of gratitude for the marvellous surgery and treatment I had received, i felt i must add my efforts to those of others and help raise funds for further research i had given a recital at st james's palace in the presence of the duchess of kent now six months later i was to give another recital for the same charity in the country in a newly converted barn most of the men who had worked on the building were to be present and i was resolved to put all i had learned relearned and was still learning from Iona into the performance. The programme included the Chopin B Minor Sonata. Afterwards, the foreman confessed to the owner of the barn, I've never cried in my life, except when my mother died, but I cried to-night when Moor Limpeni played the slow movement of the sonata. A member of the committee, who had attended the recital at St. James' Palace, asked me, What has happened to your playing? "'You are so much more relaxed. You seem another person.' An old fellow student from R.A.M. days who had also studied with Coviello came to hear me play at a recital. She had spent a joyful life as a teacher and accompanist. She later wrote to me most movingly, "'I have watched your wonderful career with such pride. "'I couldn't have conveyed to you what your playing meant to me.' I was so grateful that you told me you had had cancer, because I think this explains an even further, deeper dimension in your playing since I last heard you some years ago. Your command of the keyboard has always been phenomenal, but you have an emotional and spiritual depth which quite bowled me over. And when I was asked to play the Haydn piano concerto in D major, and to conduct from the piano the newly formed Cambridge Symphony Orchestra at their inaugural concert at St. John's, Smith Square, it was a challenge I could not resist. Later I played with them at Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. Jonathan Weirne, their artistic director, wrote to me, saying, "'This is to formally record our thanks from the orchestra and the people of Cambridge,' for what became for us under your leadership an inspiring musical experience. It was interesting for us in the early hours of the morning to run tapes of other pianists and yourself in the Haydn D major. Your performance, musically speaking, is way beyond the aspirations of a good performance. It is great music from one of the most important musical musicians of our time. Artists rarely cancel concerts, for, apart from their resultant ill will, no performance, no pay. Some artists will not deputise for others, but I have never minded doing so. One day I was telephoned and asked if I could leave for Yugoslavia to play three concerts. It was at the time of the Greek Revolution, and the King of Greece had flown out of the country to exile. I was to deputize for the Greek pianist Gina Bachauer, who not only was devoted to the king and queen, but had family and owned property in Greece. She was prostrate and unable to fulfill her engagements in Yugoslavia. "'When do I have to leave?' I asked. "'In an hour,' I was told. "'I pushed two evening gowns into a suitcase with other necessities and was ready. "'In the car en route to the airport,' I was given instructions. I was to play the Tchaikovsky and Brahms B-flat concerto, neither of which I had played for at least a year in Belgrade, before going on to Zagreb for a third concert. On the plane I studied the music, and the next morning in Belgrade, managed to get some practice in before the rehearsal. The concert's successfully over, The British ambassador and his wife came round to see me in my dressing-room, to find me in a highly nervous state, just about to leave for the railway station and the night-sleeper to Zagreb. I was supperless and alone, and outside the concert hall a blizzard raged. I could not speak the language. They were deeply concerned at my plight, and begged to be allowed to help. "'Could you possibly get me a picnic basket?' I asked i'm hungry they kindly drove me to the station and meanwhile the embassy prepared a picnic basket which arrived in time we had an hour to wait in the embassy car in the snow for the train was late but i had a gorgeous supper in my sleeper then one day the telephone rang at 12:30 would i deputise straight away for john lill at st john's smith square The concert was being broadcast, and I could play what I liked. Luckily I had practised for two hours that morning, although I had been playing bridge the night before till the early hours. I quickly changed into a long dress, rushed out, and hailed a passing taxi in Berkeley Square. All the way to Westminster my mind raced over the programme, and on arrival I had settled on the Bach, Chromatic Fantasy, and Fugue, some Debussy, and Rachmaninoff preludes, and the Chopin scherzo, number no. three, in C sharp minor. Lil was there, looking anxious. One of his fingers was bound up with elastoplast after a carbuncle had burst and spilt blood all over the piano keys. He thanked me for taking his place. I also deputized once for Jean Philippe Collard, nearly thirty years my junior, when he could not play in Kansas City. I played an all Chopin recital. Emmy Tillett once said to me, "'Mora, you're my most dependable artist. You have never let me down.' I used to be able to learn a new piece in two days. If you are playing without the music, you can let yourself go. The more you know a piece, the more you can let yourself go. Do things on the spur of the moment, because at that moment you are feeling this is very sad or this is very jolly, or whatever. But if you are busy reading notes, how can you play with your heart? When I went to Scotland to play at a charity concert in aid of the National Trust for Scotland, Princess Alexandra was to be present, and I was to be given hospitality for the night by the Earl and Countess of Weymouth at Gosford House. The Earl is President of the National Trust for Scotland, "'and Lord Lieutenant for East Lothian. "'I packed an evening dress along with my concert gown "'in case a dinner party should precede the function. "'I travelled all day to Edinburgh, "'where a car met me to take me on the most beautiful route "'through the Pentland Hills, shrouded with rosy, misty sunshine on one side "'and the glowering waters of the Firth of Forth on the other.' On arrival at the magnificent Adam Mansion, I was greeted with such kindly warmth by my hosts, and given most welcome tea beside a roaring log fire. Then Lady Wemyss showed me to my room. "'What would you like to do before dinner?' she asked me. "'Would you like a bath?' "'What are you going to do?' I replied. "'I'm going to the kitchen,' said Lady Wemyss. "'May I follow you?' "'Yes, do come.' "'So off we went to the mansion's kitchen, "'where I expected to find a cook, "'maid and butler at the very least, "'preparing the dinner, but it was deserted. "'Lady Weymus took hold of some pots. "'What are you doing?' I asked. "'I'm making the evening meal,' she replied. "'I'm making two dinners at the same time, "'because my daughter is coming in two days. "'I'll do two chickens and two rices.' Two of everything, and put one lot in the freezer ready for when she comes. "'Can I help you?' I offered. "'Would you really like to help?' "'Lady Weymouth put an apron round me, and I began adding raisins to the rice. "'Then Lord Weymouth came in. "'What would you like me to do?' he asked his wife. "'Just top up our glasses with wine,' replied the Countess. "'When the meal was ready,' "'We'll go into the dining-room,' said Lady Wemyss. "'so I helped her load the trolley, "'and we wheeled it together out of the kitchen. "'We were all still in our day-clothes. "'The dining-room looked beautiful, "'the long table laden with all the family silver and glass, "'shining and elegant. "'I'll light the candles,' said Lord Wemyss, "'and the three of us sat down and ate a delicious dinner.' I gave a recital at the convent of Our Lady at Southam, where my aunt, Sister Mary John, now aged ninety-two, was still active, helping an exiled Polish man with his Shakespeare studies for a forthcoming examination. "'God be praised for the grand talent he has entrusted to you,' she wrote to me afterwards. "'I did pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten you.' Before my concerts, now in the artist's room, I thanked God for leaving me my hands. Father Charles Roux of St. Ethelreda's Church, Eli Place, wrote to me, Dear Princess Murosi, musically that is the way you ought to be called. I have heard you twice on Radio 3, once in Franck's Variations and then in some Poulenc." God bless you and give you triumph, since music is peace and the angels art. John Maria Charles Rue Iona Caboche helped me on the long climb back, and I am only one of many who remember her with love and gratitude. Iona was herself already ill with cancer. I missed her more than I can say. She left a terrible, terrible, irreplaceable gap in my life and work. Suddenly there was this void. I had lost this great and good friend and teacher, and I had many engagements looming. I was to play Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto at the Europalia in Brussels, Antwerp, and Namur, and a solo recital in London was to follow, the biggest test for an artist, since the critics come and their reviews are read by everyone. I scurried round and found three people whose opinions I respected, who were prepared to listen to me play. They all had different comments to make on my performance, and by the time of the recital I found I was terribly confused, trying to please three different people struggling to remember all their criticisms. That was a hopeless state of affairs. I had the sense to put them out of my mind just in time. When one comes onto the platform, one must forget everything one has been taught and let the music flow from, through, oneself as if improvising. One should only think of the mood, the line, and forget about the mechanics of the whole thing. Uncle Tobbs had a phrase, Let it play itself. On 6 January 1979, The year certainly started nicely for me, I wrote to a friend in astonishment and pride, as I got the CBE in the New Year's Honors List. My appointment as a commander of the British Empire coincided with my fiftieth Golden Jubilee anniversary of my debut at the age of twelve as a concert pianist. With my nephew, Christopher, I went to Buckingham Palace to receive the decoration. I celebrated with a charity concert. "'in aid of cancer research on Monday, 4th June. "'The Prince of Wales graciously consented to be present, "'and I reserved the Royal Festival Hall. "'It was a marvelous heartwarming occasion "'attended by many, many old and new friends "'and colleagues and family. "'My brother Tony flew from America. "'My nephew was present, "'and so was my darling aunt, Sister Mary John.' When she was presented to the Prince of Wales, His Royal Highness talked to her for a long time. A contingent of friends, including His Excellency Walter Loredon, who had been Belgian ambassador in New York, came from Belgium, while after the recital, Baron Robert Weiss and Baroness Weiss, the Belgian ambassador and his wife, hosted a dinner in my honour in the upstairs restaurant at the Royal Festival Hall. Later, that very special year of my golden jubilee as a concert pianist, I was proud to play at a recital for Baron and Baroness Weiss at the Belgian Embassy, graced by the presence of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Belgium had played such an important part in my life. I loved the country and the people. It had been home to me. Afterwards, Madame Weiss gave me as a souvenir the letter written in her own hand by Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, in which Her Majesty alluded to the exquisite playing of Moore-Limpany. To my great joy, I also received the décoration de Commandeur de l'ordre de la couronne du Royaume de Belgique, in recognition des services rendus. You've been listening to from stage to page an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to kofi dot com slash penny Johnson, and you can buy me a lemonade that's k o dash f i dot com slash Penny Johnson. Thanks for your support.